We continue worshiping God as we come to him in his word today. And that means coming into the book of Philippians, continuing through our four-week series, through this letter to the church in Philippi and to you and me, the church today, as God speaks to us through his word. As we read today, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, I invite you to continue reading the whole chapter through our daily reading plan as a part of this series. You can find that on our website at faithabq.org. Let's come to God's word together now, beginning in the first verse. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess, on heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we invite the Holy Spirit to reveal how his word is convicting and comforting us today, I invite you to consider this text with me as I ask this question. What is it that brings us together? What is it that keeps us apart? I remember when I first got to know Faith Lutheran nearly 10 years ago now, and I was invited to answer this question, this all-important question. Red or green? Now, if you're listening from outside of New Mexico, uh, you might not know that that question has to do with what kind of chili you like on your burrito. But the point is clear. It either brings us together or separates us. Or maybe you're a superhero fan and you're all about Marvel or all about DC. Or maybe you're a Yankees fan. Well, and then there's the rest of us. Or maybe it's your politics that bring you together or separate you. Or maybe it's our race or our gender or our profession or our social economic status or maybe just our worship style. The list goes on of all kinds of affinity groups. In some ways, those affinity groups can be great and be beautiful for the fellowship of the body of Christ. And then sometimes they can separate us in deep, in a significant ways. So what is it that brings us together? What is it that Christ is calling us to bring us together under and in in this text? Well, what we find here as an answer to the question in chapter one of what is it that it means to live a life worthy of the manner of Christ? Well, the answer comes here in chapter two. And that answer comes in not being unified by our personal affinities, 
not being drawn together by our personal affinities, but by being drawn together by a personal God, a personal God who pours himself out for us. This text gives us a perfect example that it's not about our self-interest, even if some of them are great and good, but that which is Christ's interest. The mind of Christ is what draws us in and brings us together. And so what is it that's on the mind of Christ? What is it that brings us together and not tears us apart? It's Jesus' heart to redeem you and reconcile the world to himself, reconcile the world to God. In the beautiful prose in verse 5 through 11 here in chapter 2, sometimes called the Carmen Christi or hymn to Christ as God, it's been widely considered and sometimes debated whether or not these verses are actually a hymn. Many scholars agree they are. Some say they're not. Some say Paul uh, quoted a hymn that was already being sung. Others say he penned it. Either way, it's God's word speaking to us something about the beauty and power of the incarnation of Christ and what it means that Christ put on flesh to be among us. Paul wasn't trying to reveal all the mysteries of the incarnation as some tried to suggest in the late 19th century and early 20th century scholarship. In fact, they got it wrong in that interpretation. What Christ does here and reveals for us here is in like manner, like I like one scholar put it in quoting and thinking about Danish physicist Neil Bohr's, who puzzled uh, over how something like an electron could simultaneously be both a, a wave and a particle uh, in the same way that this text doesn't reveal how Jesus can both be fully man and fully God, just that he is in that same manner. This physicist says that we must be clear that when it comes to atoms, language can be used only as in poetry. It takes nuance, the nuance of art to describe the atom even. It takes the nuance of art to describe the beauty and power of the incarnation. And that art unpacks for us in deep, significant ways, the word of God being revealed through the power of the Holy Spirit right here in verses five through 11 for you and for me to the church in Philippi and to the church now. These three powerful truths, listen to it. Christ pours himself out for us. One, two, let there be no doubt that Jesus is the one true God. Two, we'll talk about that. And three, we are called to walk in a life worthy of the manner of Christ in his footsteps, serving others for others. Three, let's take a look at each of these incredibly beautiful gifts that God reveals to us in this text. First, Christ pours himself out for us. Unlike the first Adam and Eve, Jesus becomes the new Adam, who doesn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, even though, unlike then, it was rightly his. You see, human self-interest may motivate us in good ways sometimes. It may motivate us in the gym. It might motivate us to set our goals. It might be great in all kinds of ways. But the human self-interest will never save us. Only the pouring out of God himself 
Jesus who poured himself out for us, not out of selfish ambition, but out of sacrificial love. So when you look at the course of human history, we see, we see in the course of human history that indeed our selfish ambition has got us in trouble. Our selfish ambition has made a mess of things. And we can see that in our own personal lives. We can see that in the world around us. When you look at the course of human history, what's different about Jesus is, yes, he was humbled, but he wasn't humbled by Pilate. He wasn't humbled by those who shouted, crucify him. He wasn't humbled by anyone else other than himself. He humbled himself. He poured himself out for us. Kierkegaard talks about that. The infinite quality, qualitative difference between Christ and every other man lies indeed in this that he chose, that he chose to humble himself. He did that for us out of love to want to redeem us and reconcile us to God. I use this image with youth in confirmation. He comes down from the throne of God on high who judges us rightly to be sinners, rightly to have made a mess of things, to have done injustice instead of God's justice, to have created a, a righteousness of our own that was sinful to God. And when we do that, we're like a kid who gets caught driving recklessly and rightly goes before court and can't pay the fine and stands before the judge only to find that, that judge is none other than their own father. And that judge being a good judge, rightly, convicts his child. That judge being a good judge proclaims that what he's done is wrong. But being a loving father, he gets down from the judge's bench, takes off the robe, and comes and pays the fine that the child cannot pay. Now for some of us that sounds offensive, but what forgiveness does is it says and calls what's wrong, wrong, but then offers a gift that only God can ultimately give and then through us, it invites us to extend to the world around us. Reconciliation and restoration. He restores us and so that we can be a people of reconciliation or of redemption and of justice because God has called what is wrong, wrong and has redeemed and reconciled only what he can do. Jesus does that by pouring himself out for us by the work on the cross, taking the disgrace of the cross for you, for me. Oh yes, a day is coming when every knee will bow and under heaven and earth call upon the name of Jesus. Let it be that we do that as worshipers of God, having received that grace, not on the judgment day being forced to the knee because we refuse to receive this gift. Receive this great gift of forgiveness, dear friends. This gift of a loving God who pours himself out for us. The next truth that we hear in this text is important where we beyond a shadow of a doubt hear that Jesus is fully God and fully man. No doubt that he is the one true God of heaven and earth. How can I say that so confidently? Well, we hear as we hear the Apostle Paul quote from 
Isaiah and come into this text, he is making it clear that Jesus is the name above every name. And any good Jew like Paul was would know that the name above every name was Yahweh. And it was so holy in the Old Testament that the vowels weren't even there, so they couldn't accidentally say his name. In Greek, we hear this phrase, Kyrios, or Lord, described to Jesus. In the Greek Septuagint, that is the Old Testament scriptures translated into Greek, the word Lord is used to signify Yahweh. Here we hear Paul clearly, and scholars agree, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the name above every name. Jesus is the above every name that all will kneel and confess to ultimately. Jesus is the one true God. That's why, by the way, it's so important, as I mentioned last week, that this text was written early because this isn't an idea that came later, like some would argue. This is an idea early on, from the very beginning. Jesus is fully God, fully man, the one true God revealed here. Next, this text reminds us of something crucial, how to live that life that's worthy of a manner of Christ that we heard in chapter one. If you read testimonies of those who lived great lives, like uh, I like Eric Metaxas's two books, uh, The Seven Great Men and Seven Great Women, where he describes George Washington or Jackie Robinson or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just to name a few, or Corey Ten Boom or Rosa Parks or Mother Teresa. What brought them together? What was unifying about them? It wasn't their race. It wasn't their gender. It wasn't their walk of life or their socioeconomic status. All of those things were different among them. Their life experience, their time on this earth, the period that they lived, all vastly different. And yet one thing brought them together. The greatness that they lived out their lives to impact the world around them was because largely, as you see and read about their testimonies in detail, because of their faith in Christ. That's what gathers you and I together, brothers and sisters. That's what brings us together to the mind of Christ. Because he poured himself out for us, because he's the one true God, we can receive his mercy. And in receiving his mercy, then we get to share that mercy with the world around us and serve others, not because of my self-interest, but because of the interests of Christ. And in so doing, we love the world around us. It's not about finding your passion or living out your passion. In fact, it's about aligning your life with Christ's passion. We get a picture for that again from the scriptures when Jesus restored Peter after he denied Christ three times. And on that Galilean beach, he restored Peter and said, you will go where you do not want to go and feed my sheep. Peter's call and vocation was dictated by the power of the Holy Spirit. The place that you'll be called and served will go not where you will choose, but where Christ leads you. And in that service of others, in that sacrificial love, you will walk in a life manner worthy of Christ, loving others, not for your interests, but for Christ and for theirs. This is what unifies us. This would this is what and how the world will know Christ loves them as you love others. I got to see that firsthand in 
being a part of the virtual family camp with Johnny and friends this week. What beautiful love was poured out through the short-term missionaries there and through those beautiful families joined together with folks who were uh, experiencing life affected by disability, but sharing the love of Christ sacrificially and beautifully. I felt like I was at the banquet table of the King of Kings. What a beautiful gift it was for me. What a beautiful gift it is for us when we come together in the mind of Christ and serving God together. That's why we need to root ourselves in God's word, friends, to receive this pouring out of redemption from Christ, to proclaim the name of Jesus, the one true God, and to live a life worthy of the manner, not just in words, but in deed. Because we've rooted in Christ's word, we can be transformed. I like the story uh, ascribed to Mark Twain when a wealthy businessman says to him, well, when I get to uh, a certain point in my life, I'm hoping I can travel to Israel. Now this business man is known for being ruthless and well known for being even unethical. But he wanted to go to Israel and go to the Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given and he looked forward to the day when he could stand there and read them. Well, in his typical wit, Mark Twain said to him, you know, I've got a better idea. Instead of going all the way to Israel, why don't you just stay here in Boston and instead of reading them on Mount Sinai, keeping them here and at home. You and I are called to hear the word of God. Let it convict us of our sin, convict us of our injustice, convict us of our self-interest, convict us of all the ways that we try to call right bad and bad right. When we do that, when we make a world in our own image, in our own self-interest, then we sin against the God of the universe who proclaims what is right and good in the Holy Scriptures. That's the life that we're given. And then to walk in a manner of Christ then is to receive that forgiveness, his righteousness on us, and then sharing it with the world around us. Sink your roots into the word of God. The truth will convict you and lead you to the one who poured himself out for you on the cross. The truth will unify you with the body of Christ to want to then share that love and reconciliation with others. Forgiveness will cease to sound offensive and start to sound beautiful. You want to forgive because Christ forgave you. You want to love because Christ loves you. And you'll be united with the body of Christ in ways that you could never imagine. United well beyond your affinity group, well beyond all those things that normally bring us together because we'll be united in Christ so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen.